Hello seasoned lunchers, welcome back to more magnetic chat over magnificent food. You may know my guest today as the host with the amazing laugh on the Channel 4 panel show, 8 out of 10 cats does countdown, and it's that point in the calendar when his Christmas show, the big fat quiz of the year, is about to appear on our screens. However, his roots are planted deep in stand-up. He's known for his quick-fire one-liners and boundary-pushing sets where no subject is off the table, and that's exactly what I was hoping for today. We talk about his new book, a sort of funny self-help guide, escaping a quarter-life crisis and singing with Kylie Minogue, all over bowls of excellent Chinese food. Yes, my guest is a man who says his hair has had a starring role in at least two Lego movies. It's Jimmy Carr. I spent a lot of time thinking about funny titles. My second pitch was uh, just the tip, take it from Jimmy Carr. <laughs> So some of the guests on Out to Lunch say I'll eat anything, which makes it a little bit complicated because there are a lot of restaurants in London to choose from. Jimmy Carr made it very simple. He said he really liked Chinese food. So I thought, brilliant, I'll bring him to the Royal China Club on Baker Street. It's part of the Royal China Group. Uh, look them up online. They have branches all over London and they're all really, really good. Royal China Club, I've never been to. So I'm as excited to get in there as I think Jimmy will be. Look at this. Jimmy! Nice to see you, man. Good to see you. Thank Should you for coming. I don't, I don't want to be that guy, but uh, let's let's Jasmine team me. Exactly. 12 noon on a Monday, Chinese food. This is living. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it doing proper? And this was your choice. I'm a big fan of Chinese food. Where would you normally go? Where do you... I, I like uh, Kai in Mayfair. I think it's pretty exceptional. And uh, China Tang. Oh, okay. I really okay. Like, I was friends you, with You David like to go Tang. to a really shiny, very expensive bourgeois. I love that thing of uh, what's that when Harry met Sally has that great line in it where he goes, eating out is the new theatre. That's what I kind of want from a night out in a restaurant. I want it to feel like we're somewhere special, we're kind of celebrating. And Kai has, I believe, one of the most expensive single dishes on a menu in London. What does it have? What does it got? It's called, uh, it's a soup called Buddha Jumped Over the Wall. What's Buddha Jumped Over the Wall? That it, sounds it, amazing. It, it's a, it's a, a soup with a lot of abalone in it and a, a lot of high-end ingredients. Uh, this is Jenny. It is quite a chilly day. We could start with soup. Buddha Jumped Over the Wall? <laughs> what? I would like a Buddha Jumped Over the Wall oh. soup. We would be crazy not to order that, having I'm, just spoken about having, having given you the speech. Okay. And I'll just have the Beijing-style hot and sour. And then as a mid-course, do you like duck? Yeah, I love duck. Can we get a half of the Cantonese? Can I make it I always say with the bone in. Just because it would make it really fiddly and sure. that's great. We can fiddle. Yeah, we can fiddle. Um, the spicy chicken with dried chili and peppercorn. Is that the one in the big bowl of red chilies? It's not that one. This is dry, totally dry. Well, I think I know what it is. Let's get that one. Try this. Jimmy? Ooh, king prawns, maybe? Why not? Yeah, sweet and sour king prawns. We're gonna to need to make fried rice for that, right? And can we get one of the chickens sauteed in mildly spicy malt caramel? We ordered any noodles. Would you like crispy noodles, soft noodles? Some crispy noodles, yeah. Crispy sure. with a gravy. You know that with kind of thing? Gravy. Yeah, crispy okay, gravy like... noodles. Well, cheers um, to your good health. You seem to have made notes. There's no need, we'll just chat. Oh no, I do this properly. All right. Oh well, yeah, I read ahead, your man. book and everything, you know. Because you've just written a self-help book. I mean, I, being a suspicious bastard as I am, because yeah, I'm an sure. old hack, Sure. I, I found myself thinking, this man has done an enormous amount of therapy, and particularly NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. Here's the thing, yeah. here's the grift, right? Back then, mm. I did not have any money, so the cheapest way to get therapy was to go and qualify, was to go and do the course. Ah. Because when you do, if you go for therapy, it's like it's that weird thing where you go, it stays with you for sort of that week or that hour that you're there and that day, but actually making it sort of, if you do sort of a six month or a year long course, 
it becomes part of your life. And I think that's kind of, you're, you know, you, I was looking for a change then. I was looking to kind of switch things up. So I really kind of enjoyed that. You uh, say in the book, open and sharing creates intimacy. Yeah. So are, are we are we going to be open and sharing today, Jim? Let's. I think it's are nice, Are we going to be it? intimate? Yeah, let's be intimate. I think there's some soup has arrived. Oh, great, cool. This is the... And Buddha, Buddha jumped Buddha, over the Buddha wall. Buddha is on the lid of the pot. And Buddha's like, I mean, how big was this wall? Because Buddha's fat, right, famously. Thank that you. It smells incredible. What's this? What's going on? I, I love it when there's a bit of theatre, right? I mean, this is... Yeah. You notice that I got like a fancier bowl as well? They went, look, this, yeah. is, this yeah. is for... You know. Um, so obviously people know you for doing stand-up. How did you end up doing... Did you do backing vocals in an Ed Sheeran track? I mean, that song's nothing without me. Um, <laughs> He's lucky to have you, mate. Mm. Well, one of my best friends is a guy called Johnny McDead, mm -hmm. who used to be in Snow Patrol, and he's one of the biggest songwriters in the world now. He how writes. Did, how did you meet him? I met him at James Corden's wedding, and he knocked on my door and went, I haven't got a white shirt. You got a white shirt? And I went, yeah, I've got a white shirt. He went, you got a spare one? I went, yeah. I went, take it. Gave him a white shirt, and then didn't see him for five years. I bumped into him at a party. He's just, he's fantastic. He's uh, kind of a polymath, incredibly bright man, and... Uh, he played me a song, like, this is years ago now, he, uh, he sent me a song um, uh, called Supermarket Flowers, which by him and Ed Sheeran, about Ed's mum dying. And it's about the mundane, everyday, in death. And it's heartbreakingly beautiful. I find it like, it really connects me to grief. So I listened to this song and I was in a little puddle and I was messaging him about it and he came over, we're chatting and, and then they were writing the new album in the lockdown. And about a year ago, he said to me, uh, we've written this song. I think it's like a sequel to that song called Visiting Hours. And it's about Ed sort of saying, if there were visiting hours in heaven, I'd love to see you one more time, you know, to his mum. And I listened to it and I was just like, it's so accessible as a piece of music. And uh, I, I loved it, I absolutely loved it. Um, and he said, oh, you should do the backing vocals on it. Well, let's, re let's re we'll record them now. Because I can, I've got a lilt of a tune. I can hold you, a tune. You can hold a tune. Yeah, okay. so, I, I've got, so it's like me and Kylie Minogue doing the backing vocals on this song. And Ed found it very funny that I was like, oh yeah, yeah, we'll put Jimmy Carr in it. Great, fun. Were you and Kylie in the same studio no, at no, the no, same we, time? No, no, sadly. Sadly, she missed out on that. But I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure, you know, I suppose it makes strange bedfellows comedy because you, you get to meet very interesting people from very different walks of life and then you look at the actually what we have in common what we do we're trying to create something we're trying to connect um he's actually he was very helpful on the book johnny mcdade actually he he read it and went through the he's such a a weirdly sort of polymathic guy went through and corrected all the grammar well that's kind of helpful isn't it and was fantastic at it and lightning quick fantastic guy this uh, soup is incredible. To get into the book for a moment, the whole tax and finance system and how bad that was in your life. And there's a point you say that you wake up every morning with a panic attack. Yeah. Is that still the case? Yeah. Did you have one this morning? Yeah, I kind of I wake up with a bit of a, a start. It's not that, you know, people deal with, uh, with harder things. Yeah, that's a very good line where you say, I got the call while on my own tennis court, which I thought was... I think my stage persona would lead you to believe that this guy doesn't give a fuck because you're sort of doing one-liners on stage, you're in a certain mode when you're doing that, and it's kind of a status thing on stage. But actually, no, it was really, it was a, it was a, uh, a horrible thing to go through. It's that line where, you know, if, uh, if I'd written a book and not mentioned the tax thing, you'd feel shortchanged, very much like HMRC. Yeah. But <laughs> So having had that experience in 2012 of being chased down and, you know, the classic, the, the, the bit you tell is David Cameron coming out from a meeting of the G20. 20, 20. Yeah. 
20 of the world's leaders. A few pressing things on his mind, but no, the thing he wants to talk about is Jimmy Carr's tax affairs. Is there not the fear that that could happen again through the jokes, the the, the whole thing of being cancelled? It seems that there seems to be a an acceleration to it. Or, I think that's a I think that's a a hill I'd be willing to die on. It's an old Lenny Bruce line: the audience is a genius. You write jokes, and say you write a thousand jokes for a show or two thousand jokes for a show, and you probably need maybe three hundred for a touring show for me. And you test them in front of an audience, and the audience tell you two things: they tell you whether it's funny or not. It's binary. I mean, either gets a big laugh or it doesn't. And they tell you whether it's acceptable. We can all say something that's outlandish and cruel on stage and get a big ooh or a gasp or an yeah. intake of breath. But if there isn't a laugh first, it's not anything, really. One of my previous lunch companions was Paddy Keelty. Oh, who, right, yeah. who, who spoke in awe about you, actually. Oh, that's very He sweet. said you were extraordinarily hardworking. He said that you told him once there are roughly a thousand venues in the UK of the sort of size that you play, that you tend to do Thursday, Friday, Saturday, which means 300 a year. Uh, and you worked out that you need to come up with new jokes every couple of days to have an entirely new set by the time you get back to the one you started at three years ago. Yeah, that's, that seems about right. Like, you know, you're on tour, I'm on tour now, it takes about three years to do a tour, it takes about two years to do the UK, and then the rest of the world, sort of 40 countries I'll do, I do that in one year. But by the time you've sort of done that circuit. But then, because we came out of the pandemic and I was so keen to get back on stage and I, I recorded a Netflix special within a month. So then this Christmas that drops on Netflix, that get, gets released on Christmas Day. This so makes then, it so much easier than me having to, uh, you know, tip it at the end of the show. show. Yeah. yeah, It's called He's Dark Material. I was very pleased with the title. I had, we had to sort of ask Have you Pullman. talked to Philip Pullman about Yeah, we this? had to ask permission, and he was fine with it, uh, which is very generous. But yeah, it's, it's Jimmy Carr's His Dark Material, not to be confused with the excellent novels. It's, it, it does exactly what it says on the tin. I filmed it down in South End, which was an absolute ball. It was like, we're about a month back from lockdown ending, and a full theatre in South End of people that hadn't been out in a year and a half. Roaring. Oh my, I mean, just the, it was like the volume had been turned up on the gig, and... The set design's great. It just, it works as a piece and it comes out on Christmas Day. It's the gift that no one wanted. Merry <laughs> Christmas, baby Jesus. There's something rather beautiful, isn't there, about Netflix releasing this to the world across America, live and direct from South, South End. End. Yeah. <laughs> it's very different telling a joke live in a theatre than it being on a screen. I think there's a, um, you know, when you, like, there's a different level at which you can work on television. Laughter's a very social Noise. You don't laugh so much on your own when you watch something. Even your oh, favorite. Oh sure, you need you TV need show. one of the problems. Yeah. Anybody who did any form of entertainment online during the pandemic was realizing that people were sitting at home watching, and they were less likely to laugh. Yeah. Because it's they why I think subject. Christmas TV is so beloved. Because I think Christmas TV, like I do this thing called the Big Fat Quiz of the Year that people really yeah. like, yeah. and. You know, you think about Morecambe and Wise, you think about the, the Christmas specials of TV shows. I don't think they're necessarily any better than the stuff that's on the rest of the year, but you're surrounded by your family watching it, and therefore you have a better experience. The great thing about the pandemic is it's, you know, if you do your favourite thing for a living, and my, you know, my issue is that, you know, work is more fun than fun. 
it's more fun doing a gig than even going to dinner with friends. When that's taken away for 18 months, then the, the, the enjoy, like discovering that anew when you go back and then that thing of going, well, what's the bit that I like most about this? Really thinking about that and going, well, actually writing new stuff is the thing that I like most, testing new stuff. Uh, and then, <laughs> but then I've rewritten the tour. I've got a brand new tour, which is called Terribly Funny. And it rolls on for the next year in the UK. And then around the world, if you happen to be around the world, I'll come and see you, which I think's the responsible thing to yeah, do, the I carbon polite, footprint. Yeah. I'll travel, you just stay put. Just jimmycar.com? Yeah. I kind of just guessed that. Yeah, that's absolutely right, though. <laughs> so for those 18 months, hmm. was a bit of you dying inside when you couldn't perform? Uh, Adam Kay gave me a call, like, three, four weeks in, you know, the guy that wrote Adam Kay, right, this is going to hurt. Yeah, the such a good book. book. Such yeah. a good book. Uh, he calls me and says, are oh, we doing some fundraiser for the NHS and can you write a piece? And what was the piece about? The piece was about my mother dying in um, Guy's and St. Thomas's. When people talk about it and eulogize about the NHS, they often talk about saving someone. And not everyone gets saved. Ultimately, everyone dies. And a huge part of medicine is letting people die with a degree of dignity and care and relatively pain-free. And that's what they gave my mother. And it was an extraordinary experience. And I, I sort of wrote the piece and sent it off. And then I got a call was, like... Was it a positive experience, your mother's yeah. death in that? I remember the nurse sort of saying on the day, saying, oh, you know, give your brothers a call. She's got about five hours. And the idea that someone's day job involves that level of knowledge of death, of going, right, okay, well, they're, it's, it's, it's going to take about that long before it's gone now. And we've got the pain meds to a level where it's, you know, it's a kindness. It's an incredibly intimate thing I think uh, yeah, I talk about being there at the end and how you should be were you also dealing with the emotional dynamic of at that point you were still in touch with your father weren't you yeah at that point yeah was uh, and coming to the conclusion that the relationship was no longer tenable I like to I like that Al-Anon phrase are you familiar with Al-Anon the kind of it's sort of like AA but for the families All right, okay. rather than the people that were affected they're a wonderful organisation and they talk about detaching with love I can't have you in my life because of how you are, but I don't wish you any ill, and I'm very happy just to let that go. It is complicated when you are the person in the public eye. You're, you're pretty famous, Jimmy Carl. Hmm. It's nice to talk about it a little bit in the book um, because everyone's the same, right? So is that part of the intention of the book? Let's get into it. Um, when you came to write it, you said Adam Kay got you to write this piece, and I, I get the impression that was the jumping off point for the, yeah, for the idea was like, of writing something big. Yeah, and then I, kind of, I liked the idea of, uh, is it Malankundra wrote that book, Slowness, which is quite a small book, but it's got this wonderful bit in it where he talks about how memory and speed are inversely proportionate. And I felt like my life in showbiz had been so frenetic. I sort of started in my mid-20s, and then suddenly everything slowed down in the lockdown, and your memory kicks in and you remember these things. And I felt like writing that piece about my mother and spending time sitting, remembering things, and then becoming a father is again, it's like you, you're really, you're trying to be in the present, but part of being a parent is about the past. It's about, you think about your childhood, you think about what happened, you think about what kind of a parent you want to be. Had you been pursued to write a book? What did you think it was gonna be originally? Or, or would I, I, thought, I mean, they sort of signed up for a, like, uh, a biographical kind of book. And Lessons I, I've learned from life. Well, I pitched it as Jim will fix it. <laughs> That's, that was the pitch meeting. I said, yeah. I'm going to call it Jim will fix it. And, and they, they nodded and made and a they note. laughed. And they laughed and went, yeah, yeah we're yeah, not calling it that. Yeah, we'll, we'll uh, sort that later. Mm. My second pitch was uh, just the tip, take it from Jimmy Carr. I spent a lot of time thinking about funny titles. 
But that's your job, isn't it? Yeah, but it's... Uh, the funny title is, is a, a gag in five and words. Then, and then, but then, you know, Louis Theroux absolutely killed me with... Uh, through, through the keyhole. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Was there a point at which you thought, this could, this could be really annoying if I get this wrong? The, Writing a self-help book. Um... Yeah, I mean, I think I think I was very very keen that it wasn't going to be a pastiche. The fact that the book was written partly for my son, the idea that I was going, kind of putting down, this is what I think about life. Weirdly, a lot of people come to me when they're going through something. I'm not a bad fan. Do they? Yeah. Well, well you're, it you're seems like an odd thing. give you a call. Mm. I'm, I've run into this problem. I'm you seem surprised. I'm, I'm, I'm as surprised <laughs> yeah, no, as I you. A bit. Mm. Had you read an awful lot of self-help books? Yeah, I've read quite a few, yeah. And, there's... And, and were you reading them back in the day as literally, I need help? Yeah, I was kind of in my mid-twenties and I was very sort of lost. And no one really teaches you how to make decisions in life. Famously, at 25, you leave your marketing job at Shell yeah. and, you know, go into a new life. Was there any point where you regretted not having done more at Cambridge or not having done something at Cambridge? Or are you of a view now that... That's just the way life works. There's no point regretting. We're eating Chinese food. Here's yeah. the proverb. Go on. Best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. Second best time is now. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. So we've got some roast duck in front of us and a couple okay. of dips. And in fact, what I think I'm going to do, there's a there's a thought here, which is I'm going to put it cool. there. Yeah. Put that what remains of your soup on the other side. Perfect. And then I can put the dipping sauces between us. Perfect. Oh, you can take it away. Okay. There so the go. dipping sauces. All right. Unbelievable. That's my jam. Oh, so good, right? Um, I have to say, for for the record, that is my jam. It's quite a good gag because it is sort of a jam. Mm. You you. You quit, you leave, mm -hmm. and have a bit of a lie-in the next morning? Uh, yeah. Do you then sit down and literally start writing jokes? Yeah. What was the first one? So I wrote this joke about the, um, you know, working-class kids, they often become boxers, because, you, know, you know, there's only one way out. When I was very middle-class, we lived in a cul-de-sac, there was only one way out. Just a funny little turn on a phrase, and it was like that wordplay thing for me, was like writing things that were joke-shaped and reverse engineering it. I found it like, I suppose the closest thing would be if people really like crosswords. So what I was doing was I was trying to pick apart jokes. It's like if I heard something that really made me laugh, I remember seeing Harry Hill live and Al Murray, they did this thing called Pub International and I couldn't figure out why I'd laugh so much and seeing Vic and Bob and trying to pull apart. And Vic and Bob used to tell quite a lot of like old jokes and you'd sort of pick apart, well, what, how was that? Oh, well, that's that word can mean two things. And then you sort of slowly, or, I mean, it, I didn't think of it about, about it in this kind of clearer term, but you go, well, all jokes kind of work in the same way. It's the sudden revelation of a previously concealed fact. And so it's the, the breaking of expectation and turning around. And yeah, you, so you, th you think it's, uh, you're absolutely confident where you think it's going, and then it turns around, and it's like a, I love those, it's a lovely old turn. One of the other things that's up on your uh, YouTube channel 
was your he- your best heckle put downs. Oh yeah, okay. Well, you've got a whole bunch of them. You've got mm. a back pocket full of heckle put downs, which you've used regularly. I'm not using those ones anymore. As soon as they're on DVD, okay. I'll write some new ones. They're, they're off. Look That's at a this. beautiful pla- platter of pak choy. Baby bak choy. Jesus. Even vegetarians think that's cruel. This is the caramelized chicken. Okay. Caramelized chicken. I mean, this is... It's not even one o'clock on a Monday. We're eating like fucking kings. <laughs> this is superb, man. I'm terrible in restaurants. I think you're much more adventurous because you're a restaurant critic, so you've well, got to try the, new kind things. kind of the job description, yeah. But it's that thing of like, you go, okay, so the pancakes, the Peking duck, it's so perfect. Why would you not order that? But actually, this is... Because you can do that on another day. Mm. Which almost sounds like I'm coming up with an aphorism for a self-help book. Were there any points when you were starting out doing this where you thought, actually, no, this is too hard? Or did you immediately take to it? Was it immediately there? I immediately knew that this was something I could lean into and spend my life doing and not get bored of. So I kind of found my... Edge is the term I always use in the book, that thing of like going, well, this is the thing that I, I can do best. Not better than anyone else, but better than anything else I could do. And what was the point at which you thought, okay, I've, I've achieved th- this goal. Whatever your goal was, I mean, it, it can't have been necessarily this 25 years on. I did a gig at the Comedy Store in London. The early show was like seven, and the late show was 10 on a Friday and Saturday. And I was booked to do that, to do full 20 minute sets, and I was doing the Banana Cabaret in Balham. Very famous club. Two shows on the Saturday night. So I did the I did the comedy store and I did the 20 minutes, got in the car, drove to Balham, and then did two shows there and then came back and did the comedy store. So you did four shows in a night? Yeah, I was, that was not uncommon at the time. It was probably about two and, two and a bit years into doing comedy. And I just thought, this is, that's it. I made it. I'm, I'm, I literally, I'm living off my wits and this is heaven. And were they- And everything after that. Yeah. Gravy. You know, the, the, the TV <coughs> stuff. I think people's perception is, oh, you're a success when you're on TV and... But that wasn't your perception. No, my perception was the, the stand-up. Someone else makes a decision as to whether I'm on TV or not, right? And, and I've been very lucky at Channel 4 and, and latterly, you know, the BBC have kind of have employed me to do things. But at some point, someone tells me, uh, your time's up, someone else is coming through. And you have to take that with good grace. You worry about that, don't you? Not really worry about it, no, because I've got stand-up. I put the hours in. How's your how's your, how's your lunch? It's unbelievable, <laughs> man. The prawns. Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a throwaway. Let's get the prawns with the sweet and sour, but it's so good. They're sort of in a crispy batter, which has then been turned in a sweet and sour sauce. And um, I don't know if you've tried it. You can crunch right to the ends of them because they've been deep fried to yeah. such a degree the shells are completely edible. Uh, so we've got a crispy noodle with like a, a beef gravy. Yeah. And then, so it's got that lovely thing where it's crispy on the outside of the dish and then it's gone sort of soft on the inside. It's just that kind of, it, it's just getting better as well actually yeah. as it goes along with this beautiful beef. You, you finally managed to mislay your virginity when you were about 26. Yeah, quite sort so, of late on. I think probably... I think from a, a therapeutic point of view, probably a little bit enmeshed, uh, you know, a little bit too, too close to my mother, and I think that maybe is something that, that stops you from having forming relationships. You weren't <laughs> forming relationships, so you just didn't meet anyone you liked? I had lots of female friends. I had, you know, it's just, it's one of those things that, I, I think it's also that 
that thing is quite nice to talk about, isn't it? Because you kind of go, everyone assumes it happens, I don't know, when you're 16 or 18 or whatever the norm is now, and that it's the same for everyone, they all have a great time. I think at the moment there's, there's I read a thing recently that said this generation coming up now is having less sex than any previous generation because they're so risk averse. At the time, did you talk about it? Were you open about the fact mm. that you were still a virgin? Yeah. Catholic faith also being there. Yeah. Was that helpful, part of the narrative? Um, I'm a Catholic, I'm a virgin, that's all you need to know. Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm pretty open about, uh, I was pretty open about that, certainly with, you know, with friends and, I think the perception of normality when it comes to development or sex or whatever, the idea that there is a norm and that everyone must live up to the norm is, it's, it's slightly, it's not terribly healthy. It's not a race. So when you were writing the book, did you have in mind people who were 22 years old and thinking, life hasn't quite worked out so far as I planned? Mm. A lot of people are going through that now. I mean, maybe I'm getting a false read because I've written this book and so people are getting in touch with me. Are they? I'm going, I, want, I have to change my life. I can't do this anymore, I've got to do something else. And thanks for writing this and it's really nice. But when you write a book, which is, you know, a self-help book, and the thing that has to be absolutely clear is you're not piss-taking. It is a self-help book just with knobcats. Well, it's a, it's a self-help book. Look, if you read a self-help book, if you read Eckhart Tolle, you got a lot out of it. It's a fucking brilliant book, The Power Now. It's brilliant, but it's quite earnest. Okay. But everyone could do well from some of the... The wisdom in there is not... doesn't need to be earnest. And I think looking at life through the lens of comedy is kind of my overarching, that's what I've done with my life, that's what I enjoy. And so I'm kind of saying, I'm making a case for filtering everything through comedy, in, up to and including self-help stuff and important stuff. And saying, look, you could laugh at that, that could be, why not deliver that stuff in a way, why not sugar the pill a little bit? You've tended to describe what you do on stage as almost a public service. Was it buttering the baking tray for a couple who come out on a date night? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that they're... Uh, Probably going to have more of a time, chance of getting it on after a night laughing together. Of course, at one of yeah. your shows. Is comedy a public service? I think it is. Yeah. At every gig I do, I'm very conscious that someone in the crowd needs it. Some people are just having a great time. We'll go and buy tickets to the show. We're going to go and see a show. They get the benefit as soon as they buy the ticket because they think, right, we're going to have a great time on that night. We're going to have a laugh, yeah. and we're going out with the express intention of having a laugh. That's a great mindset to be in anyway. And then they go out and they see the show, and I deliver for them, and they go home and they're happy. Some people fucking need it. Some people are, have been recently bereaved, or they're working with, they've got chronic pain, they've got, they've been fired, they've got financial worries, they've lost a child. They're, people are going through fucking horrible things and they still make it out to that show, and they make it out there because they go, what, well, what I need is to somehow release these endorphins. I need, to, I need to somehow feel, just for a moment, joy. And I can't be worried or fearful when I'm laughing, because it takes over. I get all of that. It's just the level of some of the, where you push it to the very edge of offense. Whether you ever think, but then, you know, you can do it, you can joke about anything, but not to anyone. But you can have two, three thousand people in a room. Mm. You don't know who's there. Yeah. You don't know whether there's been someone who's been raped. And I'm afraid, statistically, in a room of two, three thousand people, they probably have. 100%. But you, um, but you go, well, how are you going to process that? Not necessary by listening to a bloke doing rape jokes. 
It's it's tough though, isn't it? You know, it's a tough thing because you go, what what actually makes you laugh? What's the thing? It's easier to be politically correct when you're not trying to make sure two two thousand people laugh consistently for two hours. It, it's it's easier. So you know, take you could take any subject off the. I'm sure I've done a lot of jokes about paedophilia, and I'm sure at every show there's someone that was inappropriately touched as a child. I'm sure. You know, you just look at the statistics and you go, well, that has to be the case. And you go, well, how do you process that? How do you, how do you win? Well, the best reward is a life well lived. Sure. And to move on and to laugh about it and to go, right, that's... And it's often, it's an interesting thing, actually. It when, never seems to give you pause at all. That's what really intrigues me. Sure, they can, they can absolutely, they can take offence. Here's, here's, I mean, the linguistic thing that I think is interesting there yeah. is you take offence. You don't give offence. Mistaken, you know, sure. Oh, no, no, but you can actively set out to offend someone. Yeah, it's never the aim, though, is it? It's always the oh, aim no, to some make people laugh. And, and, um, but you wouldn't do that with a joke. You do that with a. Remark. This seems to be your defence generally of all the the humour that is quite. You're saying, well, I, uh, as my intention is never to offend, therefore it's not my fault if they are offended. Yeah, I don't know whether I'm terribly defensive about jokes. I mean, I try not to be. Is there any time you've done a joke and then you come on stage and thought? No, I shouldn't have. I've tried stuff that hasn't worked. As in, it failed as a joke because nobody it, laughed. It failed as a joke. Too, too, so that's you could say, well, was that, was that joke too much or not funny enough? Well, it's kind of a mix of the two. It's like, well, the subject matter was, okay, that's pretty edgy subject matter. I think it's almost you could draw a diagram of how funny something has to be to warrant you bringing it up. Is there anywhere you can't go with a joke? Um, there's certain topics you can joke around, but if you start calling out individuals and naming names, yeah. that becomes problematic. And I think that's, you know, I'm very, I'm very conscious of that. You had a job when you were 25 where you could be sat down in a meeting and someone would say, where do you see yourself in five years' time? That was a classic of the, uh, of of the marketing of genre. Do you have that in your head? Or is it, I just want to be allowed to carry on doing this? Yeah, it's not really, there's not, there isn't like a specific, I mean, I suppose the great thing about showbiz is you get weird phone calls every now and then. You get a phone call from someone going, do you want to do this? Do you want to go to Montreal to do a comedy festival? Yes, I do. Do you want to tour Australia? All right. Do, you know, so I'm very open to that kind of opportunity. Uh, I get to make quite fun TV shows at the moment. Like I'm making, I made this new one that I think is, it's my friend Richard Bacon. Do you know Richard Bacon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Five Richard's great. great guy, yeah. yeah. He came up with this idea for a show that was so crazy. I, I really kind of pursued it as I went, I really want to present this show. Can you tell me what it yeah, is? Yeah, it's called I Literally Just Told You. And in the show, it's a game show, four members of the public, and all I do is I tell them the answers to the questions before I ask them the questions. And I know that sounds mad, but I promise you that's all the show is. And it's, I think it might be the best thing I've ever done on telly. It was so fucking fun to make. Who have you made this for? It was, made, it was for Channel 4. And it was, it, you know, it was my friend's idea. We had a ball making the show, just an absolute ball. It's brilliant. And it doesn't work out in the way you expect? No, nothing works out in the way you expect. Just I mean, take the last one. You know you want to. There's, yeah, I am. Um, don't worry about that. Uh, don't worry about that. Uh, the, um, it's, it's just fantastic fun. But it's that sort of thing with showbiz where you go, well, in five years' time, I, I'd love to do more stuff in the States. Wait, you, you, I mean, I don't want to say tried to break America. You, it's not like you've had no success there. I've done you a couple know. of shows there, and I, I'm fairly... Uh, I can sell a pretty big theatre in most of the cities in, in America. I'd have a reputation now. And because of the way YouTube and Netflix is, people are aware of you globally. 
but I'd certainly be a bigger name in Canada and Australia and Poland and you know pretty much everywhere in Europe than I am in the States. In the States I'm quite a kind of it's quite a different sort of thing to be a one-liner comic. It's a it's quite interesting out there because yeah. you go oh it's kind of he does jokes and it's very binary on stage it feels quite brave on stage because people are if you're telling a story whether you get a laugh or not it's still a story but with a joke if it doesn't get a laugh it's not anything. It's quite obvious that the draw of all of this is an audience responding to a joke that you've written. Hmm. Do you like being famous as well? Yeah. Lovely. I mean, I can't understand people that moan about it. No. It's because also you don't have to be. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure Banksy's sitting there thinking, "Yeah, I don't want to be famous. It's fine." It's 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 a lovely thing. It makes the world a very friendly place. I've got a theory that actually being famous is the natural state, and not being famous is annoying. Because if you think about how we lived for the longest time, it was in villages. Seeing a stranger would have been the unusual thing for most of humanity for 60,000 years. You would have known your tribe of 60 to 100 people, and you would have known the people around you, and you would have seen a stranger every now and then, and you'd be very wary of strangers. Now we're walking past strangers all day in the street, and it's, it's, it's odd. I suppose being, being famous is a bit like, it's a bit like living in a lovely, friendly village, but you've got Alzheimer's because you don't know anyone, but they all know you. So I'm trying to say people come up and say hello, and you're kind of, for the first couple of years of it, you're kind of constantly saying to people, do we know it, do we? Because they're looking at you with that familiarity, and you're kind of going, but I've got no recollection. Um, so you've written one self-help book. Hmm. Is that it? Hmm. You say one thing in the book, which is you say that, you know, uh, good ideas are hard. I actually think good ideas come around that the really hard thing is execution. Yeah, I mean, I've got that quote in there from, from Stephen King, which is, he said, uh, ideas are like table salt. But it's that thing of going, what are you actually going to do with it? What are you, how are you going to hone that? What are you going to do with it? Are you, and, you know, the energy it takes to get the, from the idea for a book to a book is huge. If you can nail that in a book. Here's the thing. It's, it's the same for everyone in every business, right? So it's, it's always, there's, there's a talent. So you found the thing that you're pretty good at. So Michael Jordan is, I mean, that documentary, The Last Dance, there's so many lessons in that. You go, right, that guy's pretty good, right? He's naturally got a certain ability. He's that size, he's that shape, he can move it. He's got fast twitch. He's, okay, so he's got that. But without the hours and hours and hours, never mind 10,000 hours, that'd get you fucking started. What you're naturally best at, plus the hard work you do, add time, that's your luck. And all you're buying is luck. It's the lottery ticket of, look, you've got luck, and then you're throwing down that luck every time. And the more you work, and the more you lean in and specialize, the, the more luck you have, and kind of the better you do. We live in a specialist economy. There's no point in getting being an all-rounder. Give us a fuck about all-rounders. How lucky are you? Pretty lucky. Well, on that note, I'm gonna say, Jimmy Carr, let me thank you for allowing me to take you out to lunch. I mean, I mean, if anyone's gonna be thanking you, it's, that's a spectacular meal, it was a lovely chat. I really appreciate it. It was great. Pleasure. My pleasure. Should we spin the lazy season one more time? One more time. Yeah, let's just spin it randomly yeah, and see, what we, see what we land. The childhood pleasure of Chinese restaurants where you could spin a lazy I'm season. I'm having some more bok choy just because we need some more greens in our lives. But this is, I mean, I haven't been here before. I'm going to come back. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Excellent. Excellent.
Well, I think it's safe to say that Jimmy enjoyed his lunch. Um, thanks so much to Jimmy for coming and to the Royal China Club on Baker Street for their hospitality. If you love the show, do please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share this with everyone you know. Leave a comment. Give us five stars if you can. Nothing else makes sense. It does help us to make more. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged, and performed by me, Jay Rayner, and Robert Rickenberg. The recording and mix engineer was Josh Gibbs, assistant producer, are on your das and Bethany Hocken. The producer is Selena Reem and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Next time, it's your actual singer-songwriting pop star. It's Gary Barlow. I would go with softcore, I think. Right. You're also required to get your shirt undone. And I looked and thought... I did keep one button done. Did you notice that? <laughs> <I did. laughs>